Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. All right, let's go in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. Today we will be in verse 12. The title of this sermon is The Golden Rule. Another word that we can substitute is the gold standard. If you think about this as God's standard, what is God's standard for us? What is his rule by which we are acceptable and pleasing in his sight? So we're coming in the text today by what some have called Jesus' pinnacle of his sermon, the pinnacle of his preaching and teaching. It's the high point, and this has become known and understood as the golden rule. Now, if I were to ask you on your notes or on a blank piece of paper, if you were to take a pen and try, just attempt to write a straight line, It looks pretty good, right? Until you have a ruler and then you draw the line with a ruler, then you see the discrepancies. What often happens in religion is people draw their line and then they compare my line to your line. How is my line? How is your line? My line's straighter than your line, but the problem with all freehand drawing of lines is None of them are straight-edge lines, lines made by a ruler. You ever know someone who writes, and they, they must use a ruler. I've never seen someone do this, but you'll get a card, and all of the letters stop at the bottom, and you're like, how did they know how to do that? It has to be either a font they've invented, or they're using a straight-edge. When we come to Jesus' teaching today, Understand, this is, we're looking at God's standard. What is God's expectation? What is Jesus' rule for us? Those of you who are here today and you have admitted your sin to God and you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, then you regard this message to you. You will hear the word of your king. This message is for us. And perhaps if you're here today and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the day when you clearly hear the Spirit's call to salvation. Let's hear the word of our king, Matthew 7 and verse 12. One verse. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. Now, if you're thinking, wow, one verse, we are, we are going to get to that picnic early. <laughs> There's a lot in this verse. Like, oh, I knew it was coming. Jesus opened this section. If you take your Bible and just turn back just a little bit, all the way back to chapter 5. 
Chapter 5 and verse 16, a familiar verse, in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus, what does it look like for us to live a life that is pleasing to you that actually is, becomes known as works that are good, works that you do through us? Well, Matthew 5, 17, all the way to 7, 12. It's what is known as an, an inclusio. It's a, it's a parenthesis. And if you look in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of, or the prophets. I have not come, Jesus said, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus opened this section with, I haven't come to throw away, discard the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill everything that was promised in part one, the Old Testament. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David failed, 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 failed. What happens at the end of all of those lives of the patriarchs and of the blessed individuals of the Old Testament? We're left needing someone greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, greater than Joshua. That's Jesus. And so the sermon unfolds. This is what life looks like in the kingdom. This is what upside down living is. So this morning, there's three questions that we want to ask we want to answer that will help us understand and obey the golden rule. How can I hear, understand, and obey the word of the king? The first question that we need to ask is this, and we're going to make these personal, all right? What do I expect from others? Because the natural tendency in all of this is for me to set a standard and then impose that standard on you well, this is what I like, this is what I want, and you're not doing that for me. So you have failed my standard. Now we're right back to Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. So do you see how this is following after Jesus' teaching? It's connecting in this section a powerful truth that we would not be judgmental, but we would have discernment, verse 6, and when we are absolutely crushed that we can't live this life, you have a Father in heaven, and this is going to drive you and me to a constant life of prayer. God, I need you. You're my Father in heaven. Supply, supply, supply. There's nothing we can do apart from him. What do I expect from others? This is where we take an inward look. Now, the word there, so, your Bible might say, therefore, okay, Whenever the old Bible study rule, whenever you read a therefore in Scripture, you need to stop and see what it is there for. What came in before that? That's why we already have done that. Well, we were here a few weeks ago when we were in Matthew 5, 16, and 17. Okay, maybe a few months ago. And now we come to this, this closing of the section by Jesus, and the sermon is taking a very somber and serious note as it comes to the end. And we'll come to it, God willing, next week that you are, we're all living on one way or the other. We're either living on the way that leads to life, or we are living on the way that leads to death. And it's all through the gate. And wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate. Christ is the door. 
So as we look inward, Jesus says, so or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you. So in a positive way, we can ask the question, and Jesus says, let's just, let's just get a blank check going here. I want others to, and this is why I have the whiteboards. I want you to help me fill this in. Now, what, I'm, what we're really not interested in are the details, okay? What do I mean by that? Pick me up donuts every day. No, let's go for the attributes, the characteristics. What are the behaviors behind those acts displayed. When you think of how other people treat you and how you want them to treat you, what are the words that come to mind? I have some words written down, but I want to hear from you. When you think of the positive, well, here's what I want people to do for me. Here's how I want them to treat me. What are some words that come to mind that describe the behavior that you would expect of other people. Talk to me. All right, there it is. Vody Bauckham says, commandment number uh, 11, be nice. But this is actually a biblical word, be kind. All right, what else? Respect. R-E-S-P. All right. What else? Trust. Forgive. Okay. What else? All right. Love. Just love me. Understand me. All right. The commandment given to all Christian husbands to their wives. Thank you, Peter, by the Spirit of God. The impossible help. What else? Be honest. Even when it hurts? All right, what else? Oh, be patient. We are waiting for that one. What else? A couple more. Encourage me. Oh, that one. Survey says. That ranked high. One more to fill this spot in over here. One more word. Compassionate. Oh, that one is another. T there you go. Compassionate. Now, let's switch to the negative. What are the things that you say, I don't want people to treat me like this. I don't want them to be this way to me. Give me some words for the negative side. Do not what? Don't judge me, okay? Don't be judgmental toward me. Don't lie to me. What else? Don't be hateful. Stay off social media then. What else? Disrespect. Arrogant. You guys are testing my... What else? Don't, don't be mean. Yeah, don't you wish that you could uh, send your kid to school in kindergarten or preschool? And like, I promise you, no child will be mean to you. Yeah, good luck with that. What else? Don't steal from me. What else? What else? Criticize. Gossip. 
manipulate. <laughs> I just had to let that one ride out. She said, ignore, don't ignore, don't ignore. <laughs> I, just had, I just had to let that one go. I was just having too much fun with that one. <laughs> and then my ever honest wife, someone said ignore three times. <laughs> gotcha. That was like, walked right in. Anything else on the do not? We've got judge me up here. Do not lie, hateful. Anything else? Don't lie to me. We got, yep, so we've got that one here. Don't be hateful, criticize, gossip. Okay, we could go for a long time on these things, but let's get back to what Jesus is saying and let's, let's make some uh, conclusions about this, okay? Now, understand Jesus is teaching something in the positive. The negative list is very often used by other teachers, rabbis, Confucius, most people think of Jesus' teaching and they sum it up with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I want you to see the power in Jesus' teaching. That he separates himself in a refreshing way. This is brand new. No one else taught like this. Most of us can live in the negative. Well, I'm, you know, nobody put it up here. I'll put it up here you know, please don't kill me, right? Okay, most of us can live and say, you know what I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie to people. I'm not gonna ignore people. I'm not gonna steal from people. I'm not gonna be mean to people. I'm not gonna manipulate. Most of us can say, I can probably not do this all the time, but I can hold a pretty good steady line with the do nots. So most people think of religion as, I don't do this, I'm not that bad, I'm not. My straight edge line is a little better than theirs, but Jesus says, this is radically different, my disciples. Not just what don't you want people to do to you, what do you want? It's a blank check, it's a wide open you want people to be kind? Be kind. Well, how much am I supposed to be kind to my neighbor? How do you want the neighbor to be to you? What do you expect from other people? As we think about these two lists, this became known as possibly in history the golden rule because Emperor Alexander actually had it inscribed in gold on his wall, Alexander Severus. Other rabbis, they use this. Don't abuse others, don't curse others, don't hate others. Why? Because you don't want that. Easily we can say, I want people to do this for me, but where does it get really difficult? when I am expected to do all this for the people closest to me, church, family, people I work with, people I live nearby. Over here, we have a self-centered approach. <laughs> what do I want? It's humanly possible to do quite well. Most people view this teaching from Jesus to be, this is really helpful. 
You want a better life? It's almost like the thought system that is supposed to be, that is not a reality known as karma. Karma is made up. But a lot of people subscribe to it. If I don't do these things, then nobody will do that to me. Okay, leave your car unlocked when you park somewhere next time and see if it doesn't happen to you. Oh, if I do these things, still centered around self, then I expect people to do that for me. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he's teaching. Most people believe, so if I do good, I can expect good. If I don't do bad, then I can expect people won't do me wrong. The motive behind that level of behavior and functioning is selfish, self-centered, man-centered, not God-centered. And most people, many people will say, oh, Jesus' teaching is amazing, thinking that he gave to us a self-centered model of living. Not so. Jesus' teaching is refreshingly and radically different. Listen to what Don Carson says. He says, the positive form teaches behavior like this. If you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like to receive good things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. The positive form is thus far more searching than its negative counterpart. Here, in the positive, there is no permission to withdraw into a world where I offend no one, didn't do anything wrong, but accomplish no positive good either. What do I expect from others? Number two, second question. Do I, do I personally fulfill my expectations for others? Okay, once we've established what we expect from others, do I fulfill my own expectations for others? So now we have to shift our view to look outward. Now we look at the people in our lives. Notice that we're not saying, do other people fulfill my expectations for me? That's where most people take Jesus' golden rule teaching, a good idea teaching, a helpful way of life teaching. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying, my disciples. There's a radical way I'm calling you to live. Whatever you would do for others, whatever your expectation is for others, be about that. Do that. So we need to aim for honesty. Jesus says, whatever you would expect of others, all right, so wide open, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, think out of the box. Remember the man that came to Jesus and then he said, but who is my neighbor? How wide is, is this expectation that you have for me to show love and kindness? 
And Jesus took him beyond where he had any intention or desire of going. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan because he was so racially motivated and filled with hate for the Samaritan people. I guess the one who showed him kindness, showed him mercy. Aim for honesty. Do also to them. Now, if we're honest, who can really keep this standard? Who here can say, oh, that's how I treat my spouse? All the time, every day, in every way to my children, that's me. Anybody? No. Toward the people you work with? As a church family? We have to, if we're honest, say, I can't do it. So Jesus asks his disciples, think big. How do you want others to treat you? Then he gives the imperative, do also to them. How long did he pause between saying, what do you want for others to do for you? How long did he let the minds go of, well, there's our list. I want them to be kind to me. I want them to, all these things. Then you take that list, that standard, and live that out for others. And immediately we have to swallow hard. Immediately we're thinking, ah, is there air left in the room? What just happened here? Now back in the Old Testament, go with me to the book of Esther. Back in Esther, there's a scene that unfolds. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, all right? If you're finding that and not just touching it on the app. Cheating, okay? Don't cheat. All right, Esther chapter six. I want you to see an illustration of someone thinking big about the list for himself. And his name is Haman. And whenever this account was read in Jewish households, the children would participate in the reading. Whenever Haman's name would come up, the children would say, boo. Whenever Esther, ah, I was like, yes, Esther. Well, Haman, in Esther 6, verse 4, after the king had a sleepless night and Haman's plan is unfolding of how he's going to destroy the Jewish people, and then the king has something he needs to do. He hears someone coming into the courts and he says in verse four, and the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Well, this is turning out good for Haman. So Haman came in and the king said to him, not, got anything you want to tell me to do today? That's not what a king says. The king asks him a question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman begins thinking, and Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, 
for, uh, so he's thinking, his mind's, his mind is going, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Going good so far, right? You hear Jesus' words? So how do you want other people to treat you? Now is where we find out through a spiritual pulse check how much are we really like Haman? And this is where he is undone in one command. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said. Great, Great job, Haman. And do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Oh, and by the way, Haman, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him. Don't you want to hear how he sounded? I guarantee you, it was, not, it was not, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This was my idea. Oh, no. Thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. What, what's that you said there, Haman? Thus shall it be done. Like, you know, can't you see the little... For the king in whom the king delights to honor. The whom the king what? Delights to honor already, okay? <laughs> Shut up. And what happens at the end of this? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman returned to his house mourning with his head covered. He's covered in shame. Haman went crazy filling out this list for the king. Beloved, listen. Jesus didn't promise that others would do all of this in return to us. Jesus actually promised us rejection, persecution, even among family members, among those that we believe to be friends. But he also promised great blessing This lifestyle of love is intentional by God to set apart his people for good works. That's where our light shines, Matthew 5, 16. In Christ, beloved, we have been given a new family. So think about this, Matthew 7, 12, in the context of a church family where we live without judging our brothers, but we love our brothers, we encourage our brothers, we speak the truth and love to one another in this family of God. We've been given a new father, 
a Father in heaven who knows exactly what you need and I need. We've been given a Father, and Jesus said that he, he, it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, my little children, get a hold of this. Listen, we have been given a new father that we can be persistent as we saw last Sunday and we can ask and we can seek and knock and keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. Why? Because if we can figure it out as parents to give good gifts to our children and we're evil, Jesus says, how much more your father in heaven will give exactly what you and I need. And sometimes that means telling you and me no. What you're praying for, no way, not giving it to you. At other times, I'll wait. And then there are times in his goodness and in his grace, he says, in all wisdom, this is good for you and you need this. And I've been waiting to give it to you and I was waiting for you to ask. Oh, as we think about this, we've been given a new focus Living with a new mindset results in God's goodness to us in Christ, overflowing out of us to those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, that we can and we will be a blessing to this world around us. If we're going to do this, then what's required here? This requires us to die. Die to self. We're not going to live doing what Jesus said, what you want others to do. We're not going to live negatively not doing if we still have King me on the throne. Just listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 10, 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his death, and follow me. Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whenever you see the word cross, it's not the beautiful emblem that you may have around your neck. It's, a, it's an emblem of death, suffering and shame. And Jesus says, if you're going to live this life, you have to die to you. You can't have King you and King Jesus simultaneously, nor can I. Luke 9, 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Romans 12, 1, the apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The old preacher said, what's wrong with a living sacrifice? It's always trying to crawl off the altar. Doesn't that sound like your struggles day to day? Wanting to please the Lord? And here comes King me again, offended over nothings, as far away as you can get from doing for others what I will want them to do for me. And I just forgot that because I got cut off in traffic already, okay? All bets are off now. Well, we want to definitely aim for honesty. And if I'm honest, 
I want to obey, but I fail all too often. I'm not the hero of this story, and nor are you. There's another area we need to avoid hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Well, it's just simply lying to myself. It's pretending before others about my real condition. How easily we can end up playing the role of the hypocrite. Have we been honest with God? Are we honest with others? Because, beloved, the hypocrite lives in denial. Here's what the hypocrite does. They dismiss their own offenses. They justify their own disobedience at all costs when they don't do what Jesus said. So if we're going to avoid hypocrisy, then we have to be honest. And we have to take our failures to Jesus. Own them. But what do you do with them? Don't just, don't just go down further in depression under failures. Take those failures to God. Go to him. This is what Jesus is saying for his disciples. Be honest. Don't play the role of a hypocrite because the hypocrite becomes an expert in judging other people, in finding the speck in other people's eyes while they have the log in their own. And we said it a few weeks ago, the trouble is the person who has a log in their eye, they come away with the sermon missing that they have a log in the eye, still finding better the speck in someone else's eye or focusing on specks instead of a personal log. The hypocrite demands grace for me. Oh, yeah, we all sin. You know, I'm just a man. <laughs> oh, we all mess up. But when you mess up, the law drops. Well, you know, we all do this and we all do that. But when you offend me, grace for me, law for you, says the hypocrite. Oh, I want my spouse to show me grace, but law for her when... It's destructive to relationships. And beloved, I believe that we do not see how prevailing this is in our day-to-day relationships. You won't see it, nor will I, if we're not looking for it. That we help one another. And when you enter into marriage, there's no wiggle room. There's no safe space that's away from the other person. Your life is shared and it can be used and it is by God in a sanctifying way because a spouse will know you even better than you know yourself. And if your spouse is honest with you and you have a mutual submission for one another, they won't lie to you, but they will speak the truth and love to you and God's sanctifying work will happen in your marriage. Oh, may God do that more and more in the marriages of this congregation, this community, and this world. Listen to what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that God in Christ is saying to us here in this teaching. He's saying this. This is what God in Christ is saying. Do not merely see the offensive and the difficult and the ugly. See behind all that. Look at them as I have looked upon you and in the light of the thing that brought me from heaven for you to give my life for you. Look at them like that. The moment you do so, you will find that it is not difficult to implement the golden rule because at that point you are delivered from self and its terrible tyranny.
and you are seeing men and women with a new eye and in a different way. Oh, may God give us the way he sees people, the way he sees you, the way he sees me. I need to be honest. I need to avoid hypocrisy because who am I fooling anyway? Who are you fooling anyway? So what do I expect from others? I need to look inward. Do I fulfill my expectations for others? I need to look outward. And thirdly, the third question is how do I compare to God's expectations? How do I compare to God's expectations? Now here, we need to look upward. When was the last time you heard someone outside of a sermon or teaching discussing the golden rule include this significant standard of the rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How many of you heard, you've heard someone say that? Raise your hand. A parent, a teacher, a friend. How many of you have heard someone in common language out in wherever you were do unto others as you would have them to do unto you for this is the law and prophets? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's the standard generally? Me. I'm the anchor point. Well, this is what I want. And, you know, I would do that for my wife and she doesn't do that for me. So she's failing my standard or my coworker or whatever, church member, uh, pastor, you're not meeting my standard, whatever it may be, all of these relationships that we have. And we think that Jesus gave us the permission in this golden rule to be the standard? Oh, no, 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 no. Welcome to being derailed. When Jesus says, here's the rule, Here's the standard. It's the law and the prophets. It's the entire Old Testament. Not how do I compare to people around me. How do I compare to God in heaven? If there was any air left in the room five minutes ago, it's gone now. Because God's standard is perfection. The law and the prophets, that's a summation of the entire Old Testament. This phrase appears three times in Matthew. We studied it in Matthew 5, 17. We're studying it right here in Matthew 7, 12. But it shows up again in Matthew 22 and verse 40 when Jesus answered a lawyer's, a scribe's question. In verse 37 of Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Love God, love people. And Jesus is saying, Everything that is pleasing to God comes out of those two. And once again, who has loved God perfectly and who has loved others perfectly? Not me. Not you. Like, hey, you're judging me. No, I'm just calling. That's not judging. That's welcome to the human party. We've all failed. The Bible tells us that. My deficiency, beloved, is clear. I don't measure up. 
I have failed. I'm fallen without Christ. Our greatest problem, beloved, hear me, it's not the color of our skin. It is not our socioeconomic standing in life or our accomplishments or our wealth. No, 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 no. The Bible is very clear that we all have Adam as our federal head. And from Adam down through all ethnicities flows sin through Adam's seed. Our number one greatest problem is our sin problem, not a skin problem. And whenever people want to simply cause more division and more anger and angst and rivalry and violence, then just focus on and keep digging up and keep picking away at past, past. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, beloved. There's no solution for what the critical race theory is bringing. It's just going to be a constant race-baiting, ongoing, pitting people, this ethnicity against that ethnicity with no end in sight and no savior. That's not scriptural. And if we buy into this, then we're part of the problem because there's a solution and it's Christ. And it's the same solution no matter where you go. When the plane set down in India, the gospel in India was what those people needed. When the plane set down in Mexico, that's what the people needed in Mexico was to hear that you are valuable intrinsically, you're made in the image of God, and God loved you so much that he became a man born of a virgin and he lived the life that you can never live. And when the plane set down in Africa and I went to Zambia, it's the same message that you are valuable regardless of the size of your home or the condition of the floor in your home or how many children you have or don't have or the miscarriages you've been through, whatever it is in life, there is a God who loves you so much that he became a man, lived the life that you could never live. He went and died the death that you deserve to die so that you, whatever color your skin is, can be forgiven and brought into a new family, redeemed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Paul spent much time dealing on this. Romans 3 in verse 19, he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world, not just the Jewish people, not just Gentiles. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the, the law slays us It cannot save us. It shows us our problem, but it can't give us the solution. Verse 21, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Did you hear that? This isn't the only place that Paul writes this. This is what unites us and prepares us for one day to be in heaven around the throne with tribes, tongues, 
people of every nation, and we are saying one thing, Jesus, the lamb slain for sinners, is worthy. For all have sinned, verse 23 says, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, beloved, the state of the unredeemed person is described when Paul writes Ephesians chapter two and verse one, and he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Do you see what he's doing? He's not putting a barrier between different ethnicities. He's saying this was our common problem. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like everybody else, the rest of mankind. So yes, we are fallen, but he carries on that we're loved. So there's our condition we're in trouble. And then he says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God. Say that with me, but God. Okay, so he gives the diagnosis, all in trouble, dead, all doing whatever we wanted to do, living, headed for judgment, but God. This is a scene change. This is a music change. This is a plot twist. This is where light is coming in, where it went from the dull, gray, gloomy to dawn is breaking. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his masterpiece. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what God is doing. We were in desperate trouble, but you are, though fallen, if you are in Christ, you're loved. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. I am loved, you are loved, that God had to look beyond our sinful condition and come in Christ and redeem us. Yes, we deserve death. Yes, we deserved hell. But he saw our need and he came and he crossed that divide. So as you think about this, many times we're, we're not gonna move our camp away from Romans 8.32. If God has done all of this, Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
If he did this while you were dead in trespass and sins, while I was sinning against him, while I was saying crucify him, while I was saying I'm king, I want to be in charge of all things. I want the glory. I want the praise. I want people to be nice and kind to me for my sake. I don't want them to do me wrong for my sake. And Jesus just crushes all of that and says, you can't do the standard of God's holiness and perfection, so let me do it in your place. And let me take your judgment in my place. And let me do what you could never do, and that is that first Easter morning to rise from the dead and defeat the enemy that we have no hope against. And how do we know there is hope and there is victory over whatever the sin may be, whatever the division may be, whatever the struggle may be? It's Christ is alive. So once again, the Sermon on the Mount is not how to be saved. It is not a moralistic, therapeutic deism. It is not how to improve your marriage. It's not how to improve your life. Just apply the golden rule. An honest person says, I can't. I tried and I failed miserably. I need someone to do that in my place. This sermon is a vivid description of what the upside down countercultural reality is of the Christian life. This is what a Christian life looks like. So where are we seeing this displayed in practical ways? Are we seeing this displayed in our lives? I will tell you this, I praise God for the displays I see all around me, family and church family of this kind of love. Just taking the love of Christ and living that out. Sinclair Ferguson, he says it this way. He says, we see then that living under the judgment of God is not a cause for cringing fear as Satan suggests. It is the remedy for self-absorption and the way to, general, or to genuine spiritual freedom in which we serve the Lord and are happy to serve others too. You see how that's connected? I'm gonna serve the Lord and I'm gonna serve you. Why? Because what would you want others to do for you? God's standard is perfection. My deficiency, oh, it's obvious, it's clear. You've known me, some of you, for a while now. No perfect guy in front of you. But God's fulfillment is in Jesus. In Christ, I can be forgiven. I can be set free. All the debt that was against me, canceled paid in full. God's fulfillment is in Jesus. My sufficiency must be in Christ alone. Not me plus Jesus. No, it's Christ alone. And this is where we truly find freedom. So this morning, you either have a Savior or you need a Savior. That's what divides everyone listening. You have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, the only Savior, the only one able or you need a savior, which is it? I don't know. I don't know what your condition of your heart is. Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? He's just being honest. I can't do it. But then he comes back with the answer a few verses later in chapter three, verse five, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you know how many times I've prayed that in ministry? 
as a parent, can't do this. But that's followed up with our sufficiency is from God. You and I don't have to live this life alone. Jesus said, come to me, but we must come. In Christ, we have a father. We've been given the son. We've been given the spirit. And we've been given the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have each other and therefore we're never alone. So that was read in our hearing today, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, before the baptisms. I will never leave you, never forsake you. you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. You're not alone. It's reiterated throughout scripture. So listen to what John Stott says. He says it this way. The Christian counterculture is not just an individual value system and lifestyle, but a community affair. It involves relationships, and the Christian community is in essence a family, God's family. Probably the two strongest elements in our Christian consciousness are an awareness of God as our Father and of our fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters through Christ. Although at the same time, we can never forget our responsibility to those outside the family whom we long to see brought in. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you hear what is the passion of Grace Community Church? Is that we have a father in heaven, we have brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's a world waiting in need. And we're on mission, we're to be on mission. And praise God, he will finish what he started, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you hear this message? It's not saying whatever you would have others do to you, here, do that and live. No. I can't do that. I need a Savior. And Jesus, Peter, I was right here all along. Come on up out of the water. Keep your eyes on me. And he says the same to you and to me. So those three questions, how do we answer them? What do I expect from others? A lot. That's what I expect. Ooh, maybe I need to rethink this. Do I fulfill my expectations for others? Yes, I do. Just don't talk to my family. <laughs> are we going to be honest or are we going to be hip hypocrites? How do I compare to God's expectations? Do you say to answer that question, Oh, I have a Savior. Whew. Thank you, God, I have a Savior. Or maybe this morning you would say, I need a Savior. I need a Savior today. Three questions. How is my understanding of the golden rule grown or deepened? Can you take these maybe over the picnic this afternoon? Maybe over dinner tonight? Talk about these with your family, with your friends? Hey, what, how, how does your understanding of the golden rule deepen? How'd that change? How'd that grow? The other question to talk about, how does this rule flow out of the way God has treated me? It's not starting with me. It's not starting with you. It's flowing out of God's grace. Talk about that and what impact can a Christian have that obeys this rule? What impact can we have as a church if we apply and embrace this rule and say, oh God, we can't do it, but you do this through us and do this today. Guide us and he will go with us. Let's stand together.
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can worship you, that you loved us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, thank you for that truth. So we love you in return because our love is a love of response, not a love of origination. Divine love originated with you, Lord, and we are mere recipients. So, Father, I pray that you will work your will in our lives. Change us. Make us more like Jesus. Oh, how we need you. As we prepare our hearts, even this morning, Lord, for communion, as we think of the ways that we have not lived up, we've not done right, maybe we have been judgmental toward brothers or sisters in Christ. Maybe there's relationship damage that needs to be addressed and dealt with. Then humble us and let us take care of those things today, even now. That's what the altar is for. That's what the table is for. So we say, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for giving your life for us on Calvary. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.